0: You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org.
1: American countertenor David Daniels is
0: backstage at Lyric. It's an ensemble piece, big time, and the character's interesting, and it's 20th century music. It's a complicated role, singing-wise, because it's, it's very low for every countertenor, not just me. And so it's to maneuver around in the lower part of the voice the whole night is tricky. You have to concentrate.
1: Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. The lyric opera premiere of Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream marks the return to the company of David Daniels, who's portraying Oberon, one of his signature roles. David is internationally acknowledged as not only the finest countertenor of our time, but a genuine trailblazer for his voice category. For example, he's the first countertenor ever to present a solo recital at Carnegie Hall. A Midsummer Night's Dream has brought him to the Met, La Scala, English National Opera, and to Barcelona's Gran Teatro del Liceu, where his Oberon was filmed. It's now available on DVD. David recently met with my colleague from the Lyric Opera Broadcast, George Preston. But before we hear their conversation, here's a synopsis of A Midsummer Night's Dream. <music> Helena loves Demetrius. Demetrius loves Hermia. And Hermia and Lysander love each other. Hermia's father has ordered her to marry Demetrius, so Hermia and Lysander have fled to the forest where Helena and Demetrius follow them in hot pursuit. Meanwhile, Oberon, the fairy king, has a serious argument with his queen, Titania. Oberon attempts to get the better of her by sprinkling the juice from a magic flower on the sleeping Titania's eyes to make her love the first person she sees when she awakens. This turns out to be Bottom the Weaver. He's in the forest with his friends, rehearsing a play intended for Duke Theseus' wedding. The problem is that, to amuse himself, Oberon's mischievous attendant, Puck, has magically put a donkey's head on bottom. After observing the four mortal lovers, Oberon orders Puck to use the magic flower to turn Demetrius' attention to Helena. Puck sprinkles the flower on the wrong eyes, the result being that Demetrius and Lysander now both love Helena. The situation is finally resolved. Hermia and Lysander are united, as are Helena and Demetrius, as well as Oberon and Titania. Bottom and his fellow tradesmen perform their very amusing play for the wedding of Duke Theseus to Queen Hippolyta. In retiring for the night, all are oblivious to the presence of the fairies as the fairy king and queen bless the house. Now, on to the conversation between David Daniels and George Preston. I hope you enjoy it.
2: Well, before we talk about Midsummer Night's Dream specifically, I want to ask how you found your singing voice. How did you discover you're a countertenor? In
0: 1992, I was a graduate student at University of Michigan, and I was trying to sing as a tenor, did my undergraduate as a tenor, and then I was in my graduate degree, and I just never felt comfortable. As a boy, I sang as a soprano and did a lot of professional singing as a boy soprano, and when the voice changed, I never really lost the ability to sing in that voice, and um, it just was a struggle, and so I, I would entertain at parties and sing around the house and in the shower and if I ever actually vacuumed my apartment, I would <laughs> sing while I was doing that. It was always in the countertenor voice because that was always the most natural. So I went to my teacher, George Shirley um, at that time and and he said, bring something in next week. And I did and um, it was the best week of singing I had had in I don't know how long since my voice changed. And I just felt so complete. I know that sounds very dramatic, but it's it's true. It was I, I knew at that time in that moment what the saying um, the the weight of the world's been lifted off your shoulders, then I felt it.
2: Now most of your repertoire is from an earlier era. Handel operas, a lot of Baroque repertoire. Oberon must feel
0: like a tremendous gift in a way. Well it's it's a gift in that it's an ensemble piece big time, and the character's interesting, and it's 20th century music, and it gives me, you know, I, I've often said that, you know, in recital repertoire, I will sing 21st century, 20th century, 19th century art song, just so I don't get pigeonholed in Baroque repertoire only. I'm very happy there in the operatic world, but this is a nice break. Um, you know, it's a complicated role, singing-wise, because it's it's very low for every counter tenor, not just me. And so it's to maneuver around in the lower part of the voice the whole night is tricky. You have to concentrate.
2: Why do you think it is that Britain set Oberon for counter tenor?
0: I think it probably is the otherworldliness of it. Um, at that time, Alfred Deller, who he wrote for, was sort of primo uomo of the counter tenor world in, in England. And I just think uh, in his technique and his style came from the English choir sound, and I just think he saw that sound and heard that sound as Oberon.
2: Oberon is king of the fairies. He's not a man, but he has a lot of human foibles, shall we say. How much human do you think is in the character of Oberon?
0: Oh, I think you have to make him human. I think the, his frustration with Puck, his frustration with Titania, not giving him the Indian child that he wants, and and his love for Titania, and I think even more importantly than the love, the the sort of hotness and sexiness that they have, the energy they have together. It's, it's very human. It's a very interesting
2: relationship
0: for immortals,
2: not to say humans. Does it surprise you in a way that Titania actually forgives Oberon at the end of this opera? You've played some pretty dirty tricks on
1: her.
0: Well, I put the potion in her eyes, but um, not knowing that Puck was going to play a trick on Bottom by turning him into a donkey. And so she woke up. You know, I say in the second act, when I see her asleep with him, I say, this falls out better than I could have devised. And um, so, I mean, I wanted something horrible to happen so I could take the boy from her, but this was a little more than I had expected. What does happen with that boy at the end?
2: I can't remember. We
0: take him off together, um, and nobody really knows what he stands for. I mean, I don't know if that's Puck's replacement, or I, I really—it's—it's it's very odd. And it, it was obviously it's not Britain. It was—it's in the play as well.
2: Talk a little bit about this production. This has been seen in Houston and in Toronto, but it's your first. Oberon in this particular production, I understand that you are, for a good part of it, suspended in a kind of a a basket. A flying basket. You don't walk around
0: the stage. No, it's been a struggle. Um, Feeling a part of the drama, um, I've had to really trust that singing the words and coloring the words and facial expression is enough to carry the character across because I'm not able to do a lot of movement because it's a very small space I'm in, and it is 18 feet above the stage, which swings forward and backward. So if I make a sharp movement, it really starts to swing. So I've had to really get used to that. And um, luckily it's a a week away till opening, and I can um, keep getting used to it.
2: Your feet eventually do hit the stage floor.
0: Third act. Third act. Yes. Yep.
2: What is it about this score that you think is unique many opera composers have done treatments of Shakespeare uh, with varying degrees of success knowing the play and knowing this opera somehow for me anyway this opera captures the spirit of the play in an amazingly complete way
0: it does it it with his music captures the words that the sort of eeriness of the forest at the beginning uh, with all the strange glissandos in the orchestra. But I think what really makes this work is that he uses Shakespeare's words directly. He doesn't use the entire play. Um, a good portion is cut out. Um, the king and queen, Theseus and Hippolyta, play a much m- more important role in the play. They only appear at the very end of this, of the opera. So I just think it's it's really wonderful that he could write exact words of of Shakespeare inside of the music.
2: Are there any other outstanding features of this particular production, any visuals that strike you? Because we have to describe everything, of course, to to our audience who can't see. No, I mean,
0: the basket certainly is something that's the most unusual thing, because nobody's expecting it. I mean, it's... I start at 35 feet above the stage and do a diagonal across the stage to 18 feet and swing back and forth all night long. So it's a little nerve-wracking to sing at that height. <laughs> are, you, are you afraid of heights at all? I'm not afraid. Of, you know, the, I'm, I'm nervous about heights. I'm not scared to death of heights. What, what has taken me some time to get used to is the movement of the basket. It's constantly swaying and moving. So I never feel like my equilibrium is solid ground. It's almost like having sea legs, you know, after getting off of a ship or something for, for days. It really, standing on the ground is very strange walking back to my dressing room.
2: Well, it'll prepare you if you ever go on one of those classical music cruises, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Or, or, or do one of the witches in Macbeth, you know, I'll be ready for it.
2: <laughs> okay, great. Thank you very
0: much. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.